Welcome back to another episode of the Pioneer Podcast. I'm Ken and Grace, and as always, I'm joined by Ross Merriam. Ross, I am actually not tired. The first time we tried to record this episode on Monday, which it's Wednesday morning now, uh, I was tired. So how are you feeling? I actually feel a little bit better than normal, uh, surprisingly. I guess oversleeping by two hours will do that. Yeah, so we were supposed to try to do this at, uh, what was it, 8 a.m. your time, is what you said? Yeah. Yeah, so Ross last night texted me, you know, it's like late at night. I'm like, hey, when are we recording uh, Wednesday? I can kind of fit this into work. And he's like, yeah, let's try 8 a.m. And I'm like, that might be a little early for me because that's 7 a.m. my time. But I was like, I'll, I'll try or whatever. Uh, my dog wakes me up at 6.45 a.m. I didn't set an alarm because I usually wake up between 7 and 8. And I'm like, you know, we'll just roll the dice, see what we wake up. Uh, my dog wakes me up at 6.45. I message Ross. I'm like, hey, I'm good to go. I don't hear from Ross until what, like... 11 10, 10 10 or 10 30 yeah my time yeah yeah so like a, so yeah so a lot later ross apparently instead of hitting the snooze button just hit the off button on his alarm so yeah. instead of 10 more minutes he got two more hours yeah I, w- I went to wake up at eight and i woke up and i was like ah, i can be 10 minutes late it's just canon and uh <laughs> and i hit the snooze that's how i said and, about uh, ross too by the way oh it's just ross <laughs> and then uh and then two hours later i woke up again and was like ah oh, fuck <laughs> Uh, so I, I gotta ask real quick when you wake up did you like know immediately like I'm the kind of person like the internal clock I'll be like this was this is too late like I knew I overslept it, it depends how uh, groggy I am if I'm if I'm clear-headed yeah I get that internal clock but if I'm too groggy then it like I could barely you know conceive of anything so the, the translation for that is, that is that how many beers you had the night before like the more hunger over you are that is one of the factors in grogginess yes <laughs> I, I would assume that's probably your main factor in grogginess because it's usually mine the main factor is just how long I have slept, mm-hmm. but uh, the alcohol consumption is is not that far behind. It's really weird. My uh, my hangovers have been a little bit different lately because, A, I haven't been going super hard, you know, as much lately. Like, the only times I go, like, really hard in the last few years is usually when we're on trips. Like, uh, Philly, the last one where we did in day two, and I knew I wasn't playing on Sunday. I was like, yo, let's, let's have a few, you know, on Saturday night, but... Uh, the alcohol consumption has changed a lot recently, you know, like no longer, like I don't drink beer that much anymore. Um, I do drink liquor, yeah. but like, you're, you're not just slamming vodka shots. Yeah. Well, dude, <laughs> I, have I ever told you I actually don't like vodka? Like I hate yeah, the hangover. Horrible. Yeah. The hangover gives you so bad, but I don't like vodka and I don't like, I don't like Jack for some reason. I get mean when I drink Jack. Can you imagine me being mean? Like it happens. <laughs> like, it does not happen very often. Yeah. I'll tell you this. Don't be around me. I like, I'm a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. I've had it all bottled up for years, but anyway, uh, lately I've been drinking a little more like wine and champagne. I know you have been as well on the wine front yep. and stuff. And had a, had a glass of wine last night. Yeah. Very jealous, but <laughs> actually, uh, we had my father-in-law's uh, birthday dinner last night and I picked up the tab. So I did not, I, did, I was just like, if you want wine, have it. I'm not having any because the tab was already going to be pretty big <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Cause we took them to like a nice, uh, a nice steak dinner and stuff. So <clears throat> anyway, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I was that man way more than I could ever repay him. So, uh, you know, he, bur- he helped birth my wife <laughs> and he's taking care of me a lot. So um, I'm a big, big fan of his. That was, it was a nice little thing to do last night. So I know that you did some traveling uh, this weekend. You went to the Open. Uh, overall, how was it? First Open for the new Team BCW uh, that I am no longer o- officially a part of, but I will be helping out with this year. Oh, the uh, team went really well. We had, you know, um, I guess by the time this is up, my article will probably be up. I wrote all about the team at Urza deck that we played. Uh, a lot about sort of, why we came to the decisions that we came to and it also it all came together late you know we we took a real risk 
because at 10 o'clock, you know, we finished up the BCW challenge and we all had this sort of stock list that people have been working on. Uh, but we had the, the experimental frenzies and blood moons on the sideboard. That was sort of our spice. And we just ha weren't happy with the stock list after the challenge, which we knew like we really shouldn't put too much stock in. You know, we're, we're just playing fun games. We're not really that invested because it's not supposed to be a competitive thing. But none of us could shake the idea that the deck just felt really clunky and we didn't like it. And it, for we all just got together in the hotel room and we started brewing and we didn't finish the deck until like, you know, after midnight. And we all sort of looked at each other and was like, are, are we just, you know, completely torpedoing our entire tournament here? And, and we were all, none of us, you know, we all realized that, the, yeah, there was a risk that we were doing that, but we thought it was a risk worth taking and the deck ended up being great. So we were, uh, you know, all five of us who played it were happy with it. Uh, obviously, that's rare. Uh, yeah, Corey and Pete uh, top aided with it alongside Daryl Ayers, who the entire time was on Amulet for some reason. Um, but even, you know, Ely, Shaheen, and I, who did day two, we, we went 6 2 1, and all of us had individual records that were in that range, you know, like all went like X2, X3, maybe had an unfinished one in there. Um, so, and, you know, all felt like maybe there was a, a spot or two we could have played a little better in. I certainly felt that way. Uh, especially in one match. So, um, you know, but, but we all really like the deck. Six two one is a per you know perfectly fine record. You know, if, if you if you win that you know rate of your matches, which is you know a little still over seventy percent, you're in elite company. But in a team open, it just you know narrowly missed the cut because of the way they've changed it to top twenty instead of top twenty four. This is also a, a fairly big open. There was almost three hundred teams, so almost nine hundred people. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, that just barely misses the cut. So, even though we didn't day two, we liked our deck and we're, we're quite happy with it. So, the you know, really happy with the first weekend of the of this new Team BCW. We all worked really well together. Y'all can't see, but Tannen just adjusted his webcam so I can see Benny, his lovely Pomeranian. <laughs> she's just and sitting in my lap. Might as well share. <laughs> yeah, she's very calm. Just laid down, she's got some pets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you might hear her a little bit during the show because uh, she's gonna throw a fit if I don't pick her up while I'm sitting here talking. I'm the only one home right now, and if she hear, like, if I if I try to close my door to do this, she would just sit outside and bark, like, <laughs> like, yo, let me in. What's going on? Uh, we so, have a special guest then. Yeah, special guest, th third person on the show. Uh, Beignet, first of her name. You know, not so. really the third person. Yo, dogs are people too. Shut up, Ross. <laughs> don't, don't make me get into this discussion with you because I will fight you on this one. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, the thing I was most happy about was actually just that process late Friday night. Mm -hmm. you know, we're all a little stressed because we don't really like our, our initial deck and we're not sure if we're like doing something really stupid or something that might turn out really awesome. Right. So everybody's a little on edge and we're all, you know, working together with Daryl there uh, offering advice and then <laughs> trying to get the and then trying to get the cards together. It's a really stressful time period, but we all did work really well together, you know, uh, and, and the process was uh very fruitful, so super happy with how week one uh, of Team BCW went. Got a t got a top four, so uh, you know from uh, from the the B squad as we dubbed it over the weekend. Yeah, Sh Sh Shaheen was very adamant that they were the B squad, and Ely, I, uh, myself, and him were the the A squad. So B, B squad, the dark horse team coming out of nowhere to, to put up a good finish, you know. Perhaps you've heard of them, Pete Ingram, Terrell Ayers, Corey Baumeister. Those guys have done some winning before. Yeah. Corey's up to like like four opens played lifetime with three top eights and a win somehow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you include the like 5K he played in 2009 and won with green-white tokens. 
Uh, so yeah, re- really good week one, uh, and then had a good time in Columbus as as we always do. How was North Market? North Market was excellent. I actually didn't go there as often as I would have liked. Normally, I make one more trip than I did this weekend, so I missed out on a new place. It was a, a Somalian booth. Ooh, and I want, I, yeah, I want to try that. Hopefully, we get another time in Columbus in the, in season two. Uh, but the unfortunately, the, the Belgian place closed. Yeah, I heard about you that. Saw, yeah, Nick Miller tweet out about it. So that that's unfortunate for the the breakfast people, but no, it was still awesome. They have a great little vegetarian booth that just has like you know seven different entrees, and you just choose a couple of them to put in it. You know. And they just put some scoops out of them into a tray. And so had some nice healthy food. Went to an escape room on Sunday night. That was fun. I saw that. We tried to do it with way too many people, which is... Yeah. I had never done it with that many people. And I thought it was like... I thought that's how you were supposed to do it. Because I always see like groups of eight or ten. Yeah. And But we did it with 14. And that was just way too many. Because you're just all talking over each other. It was, it was, a, it was a weird one where you're like being interrogated uh, by the KGB... And we're all sitting, we start all chained to each other on two benches. And the entire like task is to unchain yourselves uh, in your first task. And then you like, go, you know, you're trying to escape the room and go like, get this secret drug. I don't know. Uh, some Cold War propaganda. <laughs> Comrade Ross over here. <laughs> uh, so, um, I, and where I sat along the end of one of the benches. And as it turned out, like, that spot basically couldn't do anything until we were all unchained, which took like 40 minutes of the hour. So I just did like, I couldn't see anything or do anything for like 40 minutes because all the, all the action was on the other end of the room, which I'm sure is driving you nuts. Yeah. So I was, I just kind of sat there for a while. It's, it, it was rough to do with 14 people, but um, you know, they were good people. So it wasn't that bad. It sounds like a Theros card, like Ross Merriam unchained. Like... <laughs> Ross Merriam unchained. sounds like a, a, much different podcast than this one. Yeah. <laughs> that or like probably like your debut album of some kind of like some like acoustic variety. Like I get to see you with like an acoustic guitar. Yeah. yeah. We're also yeah. strumming an imaginary guitar right now. But uh, come on, l- let's be honest. My album will be done with a banjo. Yeah, it would definitely be a banjo for sure. I can see the what is it like the 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 haste or whatever coming out of your 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 mouth or whatever <laughs> like do 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 with a with a little straw hat and stuff. But <laughs> yeah, you would totally be on like one of those really old school wooden rocking chairs. Like you you just film it in uh the 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 what do you call it airport uh. The, what's the one on the East Coast everyone goes through? Um, Charlotte. Charlotte. The Charlotte Char- Airport. Char- yeah. yeah, Charlotte is rocking chairs. Yeah. Or in front of any Cracker Barrel. Or in front of any Cracker Barrel. <laughs> there you go. Uh, my weekend, uh, other than, other than the, the dinner, was pretty uneventful besides, you know, I did watch the Saints game. We, we, we played a playoff game this weekend. We uh, we lost at the last second yet again. This is, um, we set some eight, record. Eight times, eight times in a row losing by eight points or less. Yeah, it was actually the this, this sixth playoff game in a row that we've lost on the final play. Where like they've scored on the final play and like won the game or whatever, so it's getting a little rough <laughs> to watch. But uh, still got some hopes. Uh, next Monday, uh, pretty big game, you know. Uh, the Tigers versus the Tigers for the national title. LSU versus Clemson. We'll have to see. Um, or I, I like to call it Joe Burrow versus Sunshine. I don't know if have you ever seen the movie. Remember the Titans? I have seen it probably a dozen times. Yeah, the quarterback you know that comes in from California, yeah. Sunshine. The quarterback for Clemson looks exactly like that kid. Like. You know how there's there's always like one movie that you, for your school just made you watch a million times when sure. you were in like middle school. Sure. Yeah. Remember the Titans is that movie for me for my middle school just there they that was the movie. Yeah. It's so weird to like watch it and you see like Hayden Pinitaire 
And you're like, yeah, at like age eight. Yeah. It, you're like, oh, because like, you know, when I think of her, I think of like heroes, you know, like save the cheerleader, save the world or, you know, one of her other little comedies or she had some TV stuff or whatever. But like, you don't think of her as like a child actress, you know, and you're like, oh, shit, she was in like a childhood movie I loved. But obviously you didn't know, you know, so. Yeah. But uh, I was going to say, other than that, I think my, my weekend went pretty, pretty easy. Uh, just did some work stuff, uh, did some shopping. Ross heard me talking about how I've been upgrading my wardrobe slowly and steadily over the last two months because I have a real big boy job where I have to, like, dress up and stuff now. And it's, uh, I'm not going to lie. I was going to make the joke, you know, this is not a good look for me, but I make it look good, Ross. I pull it off all right. Yeah, it's not that hard for you. <laughs> shut up. I imagine. Yeah, it's shut not up. not that hard. Uh, I will say this. The, the one part that's annoying, uh, breaking in. Uh, breaking in shoes, like new shoes that are on the dressier side, is a giant pain in the ass. Yeah, um, yeah. Depending on how thick and stiff the leather is, that can be a, a real pain. Yeah, the third or fourth day, you're like, these are perfect. They're great. They just fit my my foot perfectly. But the first few days, it takes. It took me like the first day with one of them, which you know, I got like I have one that's like a really classic look. You know, what I'm talking about like, you know, it looks almost like a penny loafer or something. You know what I mean? It's a real classic dress shoe look, and. I'm telling you, Ross, it took me like eight minutes to get these shoes on, like a literal eight <laughs> minutes because I don't have a shoehorn, which is maybe something I should uh, I should actually invest in or whatever. So but definitely need to, to look into that possibly as well. You, so. if, if you have nice leather shoes, the other thing you should invest in is a shoe tree, a shoe tree like to put the shoes on. Uh, no, the shoe tree is what you put in them when you're not wearing them to oh. make sure they keep their shape. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I was going to say, I, I figured, because I was going to say, uh, I needed, you know, I had to buy a bunch of extra new shoes. We needed somewhere to put them. I had to get this, like, contraption that I put under my bed now that wheels in and out that, like, holds shoes and belts and stuff. Because I'm not going to lie, the hardest thing to find to put somewhere, like, where do you put your belts? Like, I have a thing in my closet, you know, like, with my dress shirts that, like, holds up a belt. I just don't like it. You know, you just have belts hanging, like, in your closet and stuff. Uh, I Yeah, I have one hanging in my closet and one that just perpetually stays around a pair of pants that I'm wearing. Okay, yeah. I only own two belts. Well, I have, like... I, I, I have ordered a new belt. It's not coming until March, though. Oh, I, oh, is it, like, a special... Yeah, so there's a brand called uh, Beckett Simonon. Okay. They do, they do really, really nice stuff. But the way they do it is that they uh, everything's made to order, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they, like, wait until they get a certain number of orders, and then they fill them all. So it usually takes a couple months. and But that means that they don't have to hold all this inventory, mm -hmm. and it reduces costs. So you get, like, a pair of shoes that would normally cost you, like, $400 for, like, $200. And okay. they were having a, they were having a, well, they had, like, a flash sale uh, on belts. Where, so I got, like, a belt that would normally be, like, 80 or $90 for, like, 40 and I was like, yeah, and I've been looking for a new belt for a little while because I, the one I have is pretty old and pretty beat up. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to get this nice, nice belt and I can wait a little while for it. Yeah, I picked up a couple new ones and originally started with my wife ordering one from Amazon. And I, uh, the name of the company escapes me right now because she ordered it and she's seen it or whatever. But I, I should probably try to find it. And it's very different than any belt I've worn in the past where um, so it, they all come one size and you size it yourself. Like, you know, you just cut off like a piece of it or whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. Um, you put it together out of the box. Like it comes in a small box and you just put all of it together. The cool, one of the cool things about it is there's no holes in the belt. It's done with like this different system. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but you don't have to have any. The, the grip six belts. Yeah. I think that's probably it. Yeah. And so the, I listened to a daily Utah jazz podcast and one of his sponsors last year was grip six belts. Okay. 
It's not exactly Grip 6, I don't think, but it's something very, very, very similar. Yeah, I was just about to say, our uh, our podcast is talking about belts quite a bit today. Are we really aging ourselves? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> we've we've gone on to some tangents before, but this might be one of the stranger ones. It's something very similar to this, but there's, you know, there's no holes. The way it's done is really, it's really good. It doesn't have to tie. It has to do with like this, it's like almost like... It's almost like a grip system and then like a, like a pulley or something. It's like very awkward. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. There's a word for it. I'm not thinking of it. But the funny, there was actually like a funny antidote to this, to the story is, you know, so I put it on and I wore it for the first day or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I get home and I can't take the belt off. Like I'm, you know, pulling from every angle. I'm like pulling the buckle from watching. And I can't figure it out. And I'm like, did my wife buy me a gag belt? Because this would be a really, really good gag, right? Like your wife buys you a belt. You actually just can't get it off. You can't get the belt off of you. You know, it would just be like this funny, hilarious thing. And uh, I figured it out. So, you know, when you're looking down, like you have the point of view of your belt, like you're looking from the top down onto it, there is, there's a latch, there's like a release, but it's on the bottom of the belt, so you can't see it. So I just didn't know about this, and it took me five minutes to find it. So I just, I, I'm just in my room, like trying to take, you know, my work pants off, and I'm just like struggling and trying to see if I can slide myself out of my pants just to figure it out. And eventually I, I get, I get the belt off, but I actually texted my wife and she got a good, a good giggle, a good giggle out of it. <laughs> I, I would, I too would get a good giggle. Yeah. So, uh, magic of the gathering Ross, there's some, uh, some pioneer stuff going on. Uh, one of the big things that we had is we were recording this on Monday. We tried, this is Wednesday now, but no bands. And, uh, now we're gone from the weekly bands. We're officially synced up, right? Yeah, no, um, and we had no ban updates, so we're, we're sort of, we're outside of the beta test now. Pioneer is sort of a full-fledged format at this point, and I, I think it made sense. No, nothing seems to be really dominant so far. I know people express some concern over dig-through time, um, but the, you know, the Lotus Field deck hasn't really made a big splash, or, or the other combo decks that have dig-through time. Azorius Control popped up pretty quickly in December and was really popular for a little while, but the metagame has reacted a bit to it. And kept it in check. It's still, you know, very viable. If that's your thing, you can definitely play Azorius Control, but far from dominant. So Dig Through Time looks to be a healthy part of the metagame, which is great. Uh, definitely a fun card that people like to play. Um, and and nothing really seems, you know, overpowered. I think we've arrived at a really good spot. There's a good number of decks at the top uh, that we'll talk about when we get into some results. Uh, and we're now, you know, if you were still hesitant in December when we told you now is the time that you can invest, now I think, you know, it's definitely the time. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you can, like, what's the phrase, invest with confidence or a little bit more confidence than you could in the past? So, you know, like, if your deck is going to get banned, you have a you have a bigger window now to kind of get through it. I mean, we did talk about this early in the show, like, you should be looking to get your deck banned. Like, it, it sucks that you're going to lose some money on it. But if you're if you're playing in tournaments, you know the way I felt about it. You know I played in a lot of cash tournaments and did pretty well in a lot of them. I ended up winning a few of them, and then the deck was immediately banned. You know like playing mono black aggro with like smuggler's copter here or there, you know et cetera et cetera. And I was like, man, I, I more than profited from buying these cards. You know if I didn't have them already, like I think I had two copters and I had to buy two more. You know which cost me like twenty bucks. You know I ended up finishing my deck for like thirty five, and then I won the tournament for like three hundred or something. You know you know blah blah blah. So. Uh, I know not everybody had the same experience, but it's worth it if you're trying to play like competitively. If not, I definitely recommend getting you know uh, one of the the renting services online. But again, I, I think now is the time that you can invest a lot better and a lot and a lot safer. 
Uh, speaking of the thing that you kind of alluded to there about there being some top decks, I, I got to ask you a question, kind of leading into the results. We had we have a bunch of tournaments to look at, but we're going to focus on two. We're going to focus on the challenge that happened at the SCG event that you, that you uh, attended, and we're going to look at the classic that happened this weekend on Magic Online. Uh, they were both won by the same deck, Ross, and the question that I have is, is uh, so it's labeled as mono red aggro, and I think that's a little misleading because it's more of a yeah. mid-range aggro uh, red deck than than an aggro deck. Yeah, and it's a truly horrible name for the deck. It's a truly horrible name for the deck, but um, I think w the name that's been going around the most that I've heard about it is uh, chunky red or chunky red. Chunky but with an O. Yeah, this chunky red. Anderson, you know, Todd spent the first month and a half of this format just continuously breaking mono green decks, and then as soon as like they stopped being awesome. He just moved on to mono red, and like, as far as I can tell, like, he was one of the first people, at least really notable people, playing this deck a ton, putting some work into tuning it, uh, and it has since emerged as perhaps the default best deck of the format, but certainly in the the format's top tier. Um, so he continues to be at the forefront of the metagame and of the format in general, uh, and you know I think there's. There's going to be a common trend as we go through some of the other decks, and it's that that monocolor decks are starting are starting to become really popular, and I think it's because of Mutavault. Yeah, and this red deck uses Mutavault very well. I know there there are some lists that only play two. There are some lists that play four. The real question here is like the Nambo with Goblin Chain Whirler, where you need triple red and, and versus a colorless land. Um, personally, I think they're both very good, and I think if you just play twenty six lands, you can play four Mutavault and twenty two red sources. And that's plenty for Chain Whirler. Uh, and I don't think 26 lands is like outlandish in this deck. Your curve goes pretty high. You have Ramanap Ruins in addition to Mutavault and Castle Emberath. So you have a ton of utility lands. Um, so th there's a lot of things to sink your mana into as the game goes along. Uh, most lists I see are around 25. And they're, they're either like, I see two Mutavault with Chain Whirler. I see four Mutavault with Chain Whirler, which is kind of ambitious. Um, and I see four Mutavault, zero Chain Whirler. Uh, so, you know, all sl slight differences, but really it's just a mid-range red deck with just a ton of really powerful threats. You know, Bone Crusher Giant we have seen is just sort of a multi-format staple. Goblin Chain Whirler, Glory Bringer, a card we have talked about for months, still awesome. Chandra Torch of Defiance. And then the low end of the curve with Goblin Rabble Master. Rabble Master plays well with Mutavault, because you know, it's a goblin that pumps it. Plays well with Torbrin, mm -hmm. so all of your 1-1 goblins deal 3 um, you know, there's a couple Embercleaves at the top of the curve. Rabble Master is awesome with that card. Uh, you have the you know good red removal of the deck, Wild Slash, Lightning Strike uh, to you know go to the face. And so you, you actually play Soul Scar Mage, but don't play Monastery Swift Spear. And this might be the the first time we've seen that in a format where both cards are legal. Mm -hmm. um, but Soul Scar Mage's ability to shrink bigger creatures super important. You know, there, there's yeah. big green creatures around still. I think it's a good reason to, to to say like that the the aggro moniker doesn't belong right like you're not you're not playing the hasting threat the classic like try to beat them down threat more the board control one in soul scar mage because that's what this deck's trying to do right it's trying to establish a very good board uh presence and then finish you off with like you know an ember cleave like you said or getting some value out of castle emberath there's something along those lines you know just going super wide and i gotta say this i like this deck a lot uh, I've got it sleeved up already, besides the few cards that I'm missing. I cannot find my Glorybringers, and I do not own Embercleaves, so I need, to, I need to find those. But I'm a big fan of this. And one of the reasons I'm a big fan of this deck is I think that when you look at it, 
and what I think is the other best deck in the format right now, or the deck that I like the most, which is like, uh, which is the deck that I've labeled Mono Green Tron, because it's not the Mono Green Devotion deck. It's like the Mono Green Eldrazi deck, I think is another way to put it. You know, the ones that have the the big Eldrazi threats, you know, they're trying to go all the way up the curve. It even has like Ulamog in this deck. You know, I think that deck is very, 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 very good right now. I think that this Mono Red deck has a good matchup versus that Mono Green deck. Playing from the green side... I never, ever want to play against Rubble, uh, Goblin Rabble Master or Embercleave. Both those cards scared the shit out of me. And then you follow it up with a Torbrand at all, it's really hard to beat. Also, Soulscar Mage does a lot of work in that matchup because you can't really kill it. Like, your removal game one consists of Ballista if you have it in your deck and that's it. And then sometimes you have um, Spatial Contortion in the sideboard. But you have to kill Rabble Master, so you can't really afford to kill a Soulscar Mage. And that card does so much work because you're like, oh, I'm going to play this like four five or this five six to kind of, you know, to kind of stem the bleeding and, you know, soak up some damage on the board. That never works out. They just get to attack with everything and then like lightning strike your guy, your thing, you know, lightning strike your creature and you're you're not going to come out ahead in that as well. Yeah. You know, trying to block against Goblin Rabble Master has basically never been a good plan. <laughs> no, ever. And I mean, I got to say this. This is one of the better Castle Embreath decks I've seen. Because, like, we've seen good red decks in, like, standard and stuff since the card came out. And I've never seen anyone activate Castle Embreath. It, like, just never actually happens. But with the ability to go wide, like, you already, you're even seeing two copies of Karizev in most of the, in most of the decks. Just because it's a good two-drop. It has evasion, but it makes two bodies. Which is a good thing for Castle Embreath. It's, it also is good for Embercleave. Helps make Embercleave cheaper. And Torbrin. And Torbrin. Just, yeah. That's what I mean. This deck, the more I see it getting, like, pared down to all these cards. Because this seems to be, like one of the optimal builds. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we, we saw this deck coming out about a month ago, right? We saw it kind of, you know, uh, Todd doing well with it-ish, you know, yeah. you know, weeks. But it seems that we've found what is probably like 90-something percent of the optimal build. And you can see why. There's all these little synergies because there's no classic card advantage in this deck, but cards like, you know, Chandra and, and Bonecrusher Giant, like you said, go a long way, <clears throat> get a lot of value, leave behind some stuff. You can do stuff that way because... If you're not doing any kind of classic card advantage, then you need to kill your opponent really quickly, right? And this deck's not necessarily doing that either, but everything on rate is just really, really, really good, right? And I see a lot of really good cards in the sideboard that a lot that I like a lot that are really flexible. You're looking at a Braden Fry. Uh, you're looking at Tolmod's Crypts and Lava Coils. You and I have been singing Lava Coils phrases, phrases quite a bit in this format. Um, some lists have some number of Dampening Sphere. You know, you got to beat Lotus Field because that's one of your that's one of your matchups I think you're a little worried about because sometimes you can't interact with them. And then uh, Scrab Clan Berserker actually seems like a pretty good one as well. But when I think about this deck in the context of the format and liking it against Mono Green and most of the other decks, I actually like this deck against the Mono Black decks quite a bit too. I've even seen the Mono Black decks having to kind of adjust a little bit, even though we don't see Chain Whirler in every version of this deck, I've seen some of the mono black decks changing their creature suite a tiny bit to, to stem the bleeding from Chain Whirler a little bit. Like, you know, less X1s. You know, because they yeah. don't, like, if you get, if, if you're playing a board-centric matchup and you have X1s in your deck and your opponent has Chain Whirler, you are dead. You are going to lose this game. But one of the other things I like is I find that probably one of the worst matchups for this deck that's a popular deck in this format is Blue-White Control. And when you look at the results this weekend, you're seeing that you know, blue-white control is not what it was a few weeks ago. It's not as highly represented at the top tables as it was. People are still playing it, but it's not crushing like it was. You know, people are adapting to it. And so when that starts happening, when its natural prey is kind of falling down in popularity, obviously this deck's going to rise up. And we kind of led into this. Do you think this is the best deck in the format right now? Because I've got to say tentatively yes. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I would agree with you. And the, the most important factor for me in saying that is your point earlier about it being scary from the mono green ramp side. You know, when you look at this deck, it's a this is a mid-range deck. You know, it, it's a little bit more aggressively slanted than other mid-range decks, but it's definitely firmly in the mid-range category. And you would expect mid-range decks like this to be pretty good against aggro. You know, you've got cheap creatures, cheap removal, Goblin Chain Roller is great against aggressive decks. Your creatures are generating the card advantage, which is important against aggressive decks. You're not falling behind on tempo while you're getting ahead on resources. So you're able to um, to do that effectively and play that game, that defensive game against aggressive decks. But you're also able to play this incredibly uh, aggressive game against a ramp deck. Normally, you're not able to accomplish those two things, at least in game one. Maybe you can have enough sideboard to do that in games two and three and, and choose which one you want to be better positioned against. But the fact that this deck, just by virtue of the power of really Goblin Rabblemaster and the power of Torbrin and Embercleave as cards that are able to close games out, and you're, you're probably not going to want Embercleave against, you know, aggressive decks, but it's a two of, and maybe you don't want Rabblemaster, but it's still fine in those matchups. But, you, uh, you know, you're, you have all these cards that play double, uh, that play double duty, and you have enough just raw power in the individual cards and in the individual threats that you're able to play both game plans effectively, and that's rare. So, uh, you know, as you said, the Exorus Control that's probably going to be a little worse though rabble master is still probably awesome against that yeah it's still a very good card when i think about this card i'm sorry when i think about this deck and in it it's place in the format whole at this moment the the most like and how good i feel how well positioned i think it is when i think in the past of pioneer as a whole the only time i felt a deck is like this strong at this moment in time is when mono black first started taking off you know, and it still had Smuggler's Copter, and we were just like, yeah, this is actually just the best deck. You know, and I, this this deck is comparative to that to me. I don't know if it's that good, you know, at like the the numbers and the level that Mono Black was, but maybe enough people aren't playing it yet. If I were to go, uh, I was thinking about going to Grand Prix Austin this weekend. I'm sorry, Magic Fest Austin this weekend, because it's only like a six, six and a half hour drive. I actually would not play in the main event because, ew, modern, but they have, <laughs> they have Pioneer PTQs. And I was thinking about playing the whole time, and this was one of the decks that I was gonna, I was just going to bring all of my Pioneer stuff, let's be real. I own most of the format, but this is the deck that I was going to put a lot of time in with. I, however, have work and stuff to do on Friday, so missing Friday is a hard thing because you miss multiple events. Uh, driving up Friday night, I might miss the Saturday morning thing if I drive up Saturday morning. You know, like, it's just, I don't know. It, it looks like it's not going to happen, but I wanted to go, and that was that was the, the plan, was I was going to play Mono Red, and then... I got it cemented after seeing the results this weekend and the decks that are that it's good against. I would probably try to figure out maybe a sideboard plan that I could change a card or two to to, to make sure that I beat blue white more. And IRL, like when I'm playing in real life, I might skimp on some of the graveyard hate because I think that a the dredge deck when it's doing its thing, if you Tomod's crypt them once, I don't think it's enough to win you the game. Like I think you know one effect of stopping one thing in the battlefield or two things. I still think that, like, if it's a bad matchup, then, like, you're probably still just going to lose. And I will just accept my lumps in that matchup to make my other matchups better. You know, just make sure I win, like, all the other ones. Because, honestly, in all the times that I've played live, I just barely see that deck. I see it a good bit online, where it's easier to find all those cards. But, like, who has that deck just sitting around? Unless you specifically went to get that deck. You know? Yeah, that's a bunch of weird cards. Yeah, it's just a bunch of random shit. <laughs> like, I mean, I think the deck is good. Don't get me wrong or whatever. But um, I'm also 
that's another deck also that does probably a lot better if blue whites on the on the men because you don't get rest in peace as much but when you look at these results we're, we're not seeing much of that deck at the top tables either online so maybe that deck starts to take you know a back seat a little bit and you don't need tomat's crypt in the sideboard anymore and you can play i don't know up to four chandras for you know the blue white matchup maybe even put another red planeswalker in your sideboard like maybe a three mana chandra something that continuously pressures your opponent so when they verdict you you're still attacking them the next turn you know kind of thing yeah. no the, there, there's definitely still options you know pioneer is a big enough format that you definitely have, have tools if you need them but fortunately for the red deck the, uh, the control deck's not super high uh, I, I do kind of understand the additional tournament scripts because I think the graveyard decks are a pretty bad matchup, uh, but they've also declined recently. They were pretty big a couple weeks ago, uh, and as you know, you know more graveyard hate has come in, it's that classic uh, you know give and take um, for those decks. And you know we might see the the graveyard decks pop up again because Theros Beyond Death has some good you know graveyard synergies with Escape and other enablers. Um, so maybe it's wise to keep them in once, uh, the new set comes out, but the, uh, I'm, I'm with you. This red deck looks great. Just, it, it's versatile. It's powerful. It's mana is really consistent. It has a ton of flood protection that, and you know, that comparison to mono black makes sense because th those were the things that mono black did, you know, mono black was an aggro deck where this is a mid range deck, but the, you know, the deck can play that controlling game and grind people out. You play a bunch of removal and then threats that keep coming back. Um, and then, you, you know, you never run out of stuff to do with your mana because of Castle Lockthwain and the aforementioned Mutavolt. And, that, no, it, it's, I don't know if it's a huge surprise, but the Mono Black Aggro deck is still around, even without Smuggler's Copter. You know, got second place in the challenge. There's, uh, you know, others in the top eight. Uh, we still see a little bit of the Vampire version that plays, uh, you know, Soren Imperious Bloodlord and Champion of Dusk. But the straight Mono Black Aggro version is, has supplanted it once again. Um, and it's really just, you know, we, we took out Night Market Lookout, we're playing different one drops, and we're playing more Rankles and Big Flyers because we don't have uh, um, Smuggler's Copter and a little bit more removal uh, because our aggressive plan isn't as good, and call it a day. So not a, not huge changes from this Mono Black deck. So uh, I think that, that sort of goes to show that you know, Smuggler's Copter was probably a problem, right? Uh, you know, th This is already a deck that can compete, and then Copter was just you know way above rate on compared to other threats and perfect in the deck um you know reasonable to get that card out of here you know this mono black deck definitely still a thing might struggle a bit with mono red we're seeing more ultimate prices and grasp of darkness in those extra removal slots those all seem like cards that match up well against the threats in mono red you know obviously ultimate price against a monocolor deck uh, gonna be good and um I, i'm i'm be interesting to see it, you know what one drops we arrive on because there aren't a lot of good two toughness one drops beyond Knight of the Ebon Legion. So how how much are you willing to sacrifice to insulate yourself against Rabble, uh Chain Whirler? Uh or are you just gonna try to do that in out of the sideboard and say, you know, game one against this deck, I'm vulnerable to this one card, um, but I'll I'll fix it in the post board games. Yeah, like when I look at the two so three mono black decks made top eight of the challenge, the online one. Uh two of which were the Typical aggro version, one of which was the Soren Imperious Bloodlord vampire synergy type. And when you look at it, when you look at the one drops, if you eschew Knight of the Ebon Legion, you're looking at something about like, there's usually about 12 to 13 one drops in these decks. You're looking at uh, Bloodsoak Champion, Gutter Bones, and Dreadwanderer, all of which get, you know, kind of picked off by Goblin Chain Whirler, like we talked about earlier, something you might want to try to shoe from. But obviously, if they're not playing Chain Whirler as much, which seems like 
the four muta vault no chain roller version might be better then this is this is something that you can do and not have to worry about it the problem is you know they have one threes for two mana they can get kind of big on the board and they have a bunch of goblin tokens sometimes left over from rabble master because you have to kill the rabble master and then they just have a bunch of one drops your one drops do come back you know blood champion and gutter bones do come back but if you're spending all your mana doing that and they're doing anything else more proactive you are falling behind so i'm not sure what's right there it does kind of freak me out a little bit when i look at the modern red decks and they're like well chain is way too hard to cast right chain is way too hard to cast we have these four muta vaults but they still have torbrins in their deck and i'm like that one extra turn does it really make that big of a difference is your draw on average exactly three mountains and muta vault but you don't draw the third mountain until turn four like that's your exact average you know, because like you, it doesn't theoretically make sense to me. I get it. You know, one card, it's not necessarily a four drop. You know, it's like the turn you're going to finish them off. They like set up some blockers and you're like, well, I'm going to make another Rebel Master token, play Torb and attack you for, you know, just a ton, you know, and like that makes sense. So I got to say, these are still, I think, two of the three decks to beat with Mono Green being the other one, which we saw Mono Green come in second place at the uh, the classic that happened uh, this weekend. And there was a couple, like, interesting little things in the deck, because you can kind of go one way or the other. Like, there's only one Walking Ballista main, which, the more I play with the deck, the more I'm just like, I, I, I played it this weekend as well. I went from four Ballista down to three main, because originally that was, like, my only way to interact, mostly, uh, game one. And uh, you're seeing the number of Ugans go down. Like, my original version of four, I played three this weekend. Uh, Chris played two in his second place list. So, like, those numbers are interesting. Like, where you want to go. Um, I will say this. I've been saying this about the Mono Green deck. Before you play your first Elf in this deck, I think you should need to make sure that you're playing four Boil Grazers and four Elvish Rejuvenator. Obviously, Elf makes Rejuvenator better. But the thing is, is like your actual land count is more important than having a creature that produces mana. The second place list actually had zero Elves in it. It played four Gilded Goose instead, which is interesting. You're looking at a 0-2 instead of a 1-1. So it can attack, but it does survive... You know, Chain Whirler, it can block some of these one-power uh, creatures. But there's a lot of turns where you have a little bit of leftover mana. Making food tokens can actually be pretty important in some matchups where you're just trying to stay alive long enough to cast Ulamong, the Ceaseless Hunter. Um, a card that I played this weekend that I had not played prior uh, priorly is Uvenwald Hydra, the Commander All-Star Uvenwald Hydra. Um, the deck definitely needs some number of like good sixes to make sure that it rolls into like eight, nine, and ten mana very quickly. And Uvenwall Hydra is definitely one of those. Um, one of the cool things that it does is it finds any land and come and puts it into play tapped from your deck. So this is pretty cool. Chris's version had two utility lands. He had two blast zones. The version I had I had one blast zone and one um what's the uh the arch from from Arch of Araska. Arch of Araska. And so I had an arch. So something I could do late in the game where I can just start drawing a bunch of cards. Because, like, you can flood out if they stop, like, your one or two big threats. That is something that can happen with this deck. Because you have a lot of mana, Ross, with this deck. I mean, it's literally Tron. So having something along those lines is pretty good. But the thing is, when you have cards like Shrine of the Forsaken Gods in your deck, you want to make sure that happens as soon as possible. That enables a lot of your busted draw. So you want actual lands. Plus, when you're playing a Boil Grazers, you can kind of... I know the the thing, like, it's worse to draw one of those late than with, like, Landwar Elves. But you're still playing four Nissa's Pilgrimage in your deck. So, like, you have leftover lands in your hand a lot of times to kind of jump with it. It's also not like it's good to draw Landwar Elves late in the game. Yeah, it's you're really still not, not happy. Yeah, you're, you're definitely not happy. But, honestly, I won a game just because it was in a 0-3 with Reach. You know, I played against Spirits. 
or whatever. And a boil grazer is a giant pain in their ass, by the way. They do not like the card. And the other thing about this, like, I played against Spirits, and you would think that, like, a, a blue-white tempo deck with counterspells would be good against this deck. It is not. Because here's the thing. Huh. Any of the cards, if they resolve, pretty much into the game. Like, Walking Bliss is hard to beat, all these cards. But if you look at the creatures in the mono green deck, they all have this one ability just extra tacked on. Every every creature has reached for some reason, Ross. I don't know why. Like, Cavalier of Thorns is literally some elf creature on uh, what looks like some form of elk, right? It's like it's like this moose-looking elk thing, but it, it's 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 a knight on horseback, right? That that's what it is, right? It's an elemental knight. He can for some reason block flyers. I guess because he's a tree holding a long stick. Yeah, he's, real real long stick. Yeah, I guess because he's a tree, and then like. Almost all the versions now, and I think you should play four World Breaker, which have reach, and they're just gigantic. They're very hard to get through. It, you know, this card can block a lot of the flying threats in this format and just kind of either bounce off of it or, or eat them up, you know, like Glory Bring or stuff like that. But also, getting cast triggers out of this, this is one of the ways you beat Blue White, is you just drown them in like cards like World Breaker, Ulamog, while also pressing them early because you're making all this mana. Like, what do they do? Do they counterspell your ramp stuff? Do they counterspell your threats that have cash triggers they're in a world of hurt when it comes to this so like this is a deck that i find the matchup against blue white to be pretty damn good uh but you can definitely lose to mono black draws and you know some of the red uh draws so i, I like where this format's at ross i'm super excited because when you're looking at these decks that we're talking about the top tier decks like they all have like the abc you know they beat they beat a beats b but loses to c but c beats a you know like and yeah. back and forth and i like it uh, I'm I'm seeing a mid-range deck, I'm seeing a ramp deck, I'm seeing a control deck, I'm seeing an aggro deck, and then, you know, behind them are, you know, some other decks. You know, there, there's a Lotus Field combo deck in ninth place of the Classic. Uh, you know, there, there are some other mid-range, other aggro options. So you have some, you know, tier two options, but the top tier of the metagame right now looks to be, uh, you know, fairly diverse strategically. There is some issue with, like, you know, it's all monocolor decks, um, and, and maybe that's a problem where just the mana isn't good enough without fetch lands to properly incentivize you to play a bunch of colors, uh, you know, beyond Azorius control, because there are just so many other good lands, you know, mono red gets to use several utility lands. Like we talked about mono black does, uh, the, the mono green ramp deck. In addition to those blast zones, maybe Archer gets to play radiant fountain and sanctum of Ugin. So it's getting a lot of value from its mana base. Uh, and, you know, so the, the other, you know, the multicolor decks, like, how much more powerful are you getting? You know, the format has a pretty deep pool of cards in any individual color. So how much do you get by adding another color and increasing the, the size of your available pool versus the amount of value you're getting by actually putting, you know, eight to 10 utility lands in your deck, which you get to do when you're playing one color. Whereas when you're playing three colors, like you basically get to play none. Does Azorius Control get to play Utility Lands? What do we got here? The, we got, oh yeah, they get to, they get to play but, castles. And but they're on color. Ruins. Yeah, but yeah, they're on so, color. So, yeah, you, you, even with them. One thing I want to talk about, kind of piggyback what you're saying about like the monocolor decks of utility lands. I kind of going to talk about for like two seconds the eleventh place list from the uh, the classic thing. It's Black Eldrazi, so it's another version of Mono Black. But I'm just going to read off the creatures to you here: uh, Gifted Aetherborn, Mattery Shaper, uh, Murderous Rider, Reality Smasher, Thought Not Seer, Kalidus. I like all those other ones, by the way. Those are great. But you know, you're looking at just you know. Thoughtseize, Fatal Push. Apparently, there's Assassin's Trophy in this deck, but, like, there's not a ton of sources of green, but it's fine. Um, you know, just as a way, because it looks like it's just Mono Black splashing Assassin's Trophy, but when I'm looking at the lands in this deck, you look at Mirror uh, mirror Pool, 
If near Deadlands, Endless Sands, Castle Lockwain, uh, Blighted Fin, Blast Zone, Waste, the card Waste is in here because you're looking at four Fabled Passage because you can get that. This is a pretty cool little deck going on here. I, I like this. And it, uh, you get it gets to do the thing you were talking about where I'm not saying this is a, you know a tier one deck, but I like what's going on here. And it's doing what you're talking about where it's technically a monocolored deck and it gets to really take advantage of the fact that it gets to play all these utility lands. Yeah, I like the mana base. I'll say that. I just don't like the Eldrazi creatures. Like, are these creatures good? I actually, I kind of think Matter Reshaper might be good in Pioneer the more I, I look at it, but I don't think Reality Smasher is good, and you only see two copies here. Thought Knot's pretty good, um, but, the, you know, the the Red decks play um, Glorybringer and Chandra. I guess Thought Knot just, like, takes those out of their hand. Yeah, Thought Knot's good. That card will just be, be good. But if, if Matter Reshaper is good, and it might be, like, you know, getting that easy two-for-one against all these other creature decks... And even against Azorius, like, I guess it's it's bad against Azorius Charm, but it's pretty good against all their other removal. It's nice to be able to extend another creature into a sweeper and still get your card back. Um, so, yeah, okay. I'm I'm sort of slowly convincing myself live on the air uh, that <laughs> this is uh, this is cool. But I definitely like the mana base. Like, yeah, let's get some value. There's a lot of cool lands around. What, where's our Hashup Oasis? I guess, I guess there's only one forest. So we, we, yeah, there's not, there's not enough green cards to play Hash of Voices. Uh, they're literally just splashing green for Assassin's Trophy, which seems kind of weird to me. Um, you could just be mono blacking and play, you know, four if near dead lands and, uh, you know, more, more basics or whatever. Fable Passage is still dual in there. It's, I'm, I'm into just playing utility lands. They're my favorite kind of card in all of Magic. I wrote an ode to them like four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and we're, I, I think it took a while because most people, they sort of ignore the mana base, right? When they build decks, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of an afterthought. They, they just look at all the and some and lands. Play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and 24 lands. Yeah. Now, how often do you hear that when it, somebody's making a deck list? Yeah. Uh, they don't really take that into account. And uh, I, I try to a lot. I think that's one of the, one of uh, the ways I approach deck building um, and even card evaluation differently than other people. Um, so, it, I've been I like I've been playing Mutavault in, in the format for a while, and uh, glad to see it finally uh, emerging. And you know, we're we started with people really trying to build you know two and three colored X, and we paired it back. We're just give us that consistency, give us that you know flood protection. Those are all really really important things, very easy to overlook. Um, and right now, they seem to be what is defining Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And uh, going the complete opposite end of what we're talking about and what you like, there's one other deck that I wanted to talk about from the classic. Is it the, is it the fifth place it's list? It's the fifth place list in <laughs> Jun Sacrifice, where none of the lands do anything besides produce two different colors of mana. It's just a... They have one Castle Lockman. Yeah, yeah, but you get what I'm saying. It's literally just a million dual lands and some basics and some Fable yep. Passages. But So this deck is practically straight up the standard Jun Sacrifice list. The only card in here that I'm seeing that's not standard legal in the main deck is what Hangerback Walker and some of the lands like Bl Blooming Marsh? Okay, and Blooming Blo Marsh. There we go. Blo Blooming Marsh is the only one, right? Yeah. It's all shock lands and fable passages yeah. and castle. Yeah. So just Blooming Marsh and Hangerback Walker. So I think so somebody got lost and they went to the wrong, you know, classic. end of the judges table. Yeah. Got in the wrong classic though. Normally, like if you like your standard deck, you want to be playing the standard classics because they're small. Mm -hmm. And the one last weekend was like seventy people. You know what it is? They liked their standard deck, but they hated the mirror. They didn't want to play the mirror all day long. 
<laughs> so they're like, I'm just going to play Pioneer. I'll put Thoughtseize on my sideboard. I'll put some Hangerback Walkers in my main deck. Call it a day. And hey, they get rewarded. This deck is pretty cool. Um, It's exactly what you'd think from the standard version. You're looking at Hangerback Walker, Cauldron Familiar, Gilded Goose, Mayhem Devil, Murderous Rider, Paradise Druid. There's Corvald in here, Massacre Girl, Witches Oven, and Trail of Crumbs, amongst some other cards. And uh, that's that's the deck. You know, we're... I, I gotta say, I like the addition of Hangerback Walker. Yeah, it's definitely a cool seems one. Like a, seems like an awesome card in the deck. Uh, and it, it kind of goes to show you how powerful Throne of Eldraine is, right? right? I mean, we already know how powerful that set is. It's dominated every format. But even beyond, you know, we, we, like once upon a time in Oko, or sort of the poster children for it. But even with those cards gone, we've taken what has then become the best deck in Standard and just ported it directly into Pioneer, and it might just be good. Because, you know, Murderous Rider is great. This is already a staple of Pioneer in mono-black uh, decks. And Gilded Goose is a staple in Modern, and we've seen it a bit in Pioneer. It was in the Modern Green Ramp deck. You know, Hangerback Walker is a proven card. But this Witch's Oven, Trail of Crumbs, Cauldron Familiar engine is also just really powerful. It's a bunch of hard-to-answer permanents that are very cheap. They're all one and two mana. They, you know, Cauldron Familiar helps, you know, gives you a life buffer, blocks a little bit. You know, you generate these foods, you generate card advantage, and then you just have this wealth of resources. And when you finally, you know, get them all onto the battlefield, suddenly these synergies are supercharged. And you just end the game with Mayhem Devil, which is... Spurs is kind of messed up. I don't know who designed this card, Mayhem Devil, but whenever any player sacrifices a permanent, is not a line of text I would have thought they would put on a card. So I've been playing a little bit of Commander recently just because I wanted to have a little more fun and like my, my store is very casual. Ton of Commander players. And one of the decks I own, I own our Cobalt deck uh, as, a, as a Commander deck. And if you cast Mayhem Devil, like I like turn two to Mayhem Devil or whatever the other day in a four-player game, I think I had something like 30 triggers before the game was over. And I don't even think a third of them were mine. You know, every fetch land, every little thing. So, I mean, yeah, you, you just got to pay a little more attention than normal. <laughs> you know, a lot of triggers going on. Another cool thing, this deck has Wicked Wolf in the sideboard, a card that we haven't seen in this format since Oko's banning. But when you see Trail of Crumbs and Witch's Oven creating food, Wicked Wolf is really good against Mono Black and Mono Red. In, in the waning days of Oko's time in Pioneer, Wicked Wolf was a card that was on the rise and was really, really good. It was one of the best creatures in the format, period. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, honestly, like, I could see that card in the main deck here with the way this metagame looks. Also, just, like, gaining Indestructible against Supreme Verdict is great. So, even yeah. against Azorius. So, let's get some... Let's get some... You know, I, I'm really glad you said that because that was where I was going next. I was like, can we get this card in the main? I mean, I don't know what to cut, honestly, because all these cards are freaking great. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. This deck is just a pile of cards that are good. You know? Because it... Which is... By the way, the calling card of every Jun deck ever, right? You're just like, all my cards are just good, you know, like very good on rate. So I don't know where you make the changes, but you know, like maybe these Massacre Girls aren't needed if you're having Wicked Wolf main, but maybe Massacre Girls just too damn good against Mono Black and stuff to cut. I, I, I want to swap the Massacre Girls for the Wicked Wolves. So I think you're right. Yeah. That's that's the change. Just put those on the sideboard. Wicked Wolf is still great in the matchups where Massacre Girl is good, uh, but it's you know lower on your curve, which is always nice. And it's better against control decks and better against ramp decks, even though neither is good. Um, so it just makes more sense to me as a main deck card. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I got to say, I'm just a big fan of Gilded Goose in general. I think this card's great. I'm, I've actually been messing around with it in Legacy uh, quite a bit. So uh, I'm going to go out and say that this card might have also been on the list of possibly too good. When we looked at it originally, we were like, eh, I don't know about this. This is like one of the not good 
uh, you know, one drops that I've seen before, but this card is just making so many waves in every format. I think it's just actually really, really good. Well, the the, the evaluation, I think, was pretty simple. It was, this card is good if in food, food decks yeah. and not very good in non-food decks. And the food mechanic is just has so many pushed cards in it that food decks have been good in every format. Not to mention that it's an, it makes an artifact, which is, like, relevant, modern, and then, like... In Legacy, I'm I'm trying it out in uh, like blue green sh shells that are like almost like a Delver deck, but you want to either cast Oko or True Name Nemesis on like turn two, and then if you're gonna if you're gonna play that, it's like do I do I play Hierarch? Do I I mean like Hierarch's just like one of the best mana creatures ever, but is this just better in generating food with like you know it's just something to try out and think about, and the fact that I'm doing that in Legacy just shows you how powerful these cards are and how messed up Throne of Eldraine is. And speaking of how messed up Throne of Eldraine is, how powerful it is, are we, are we seeing another set of that level with Theros Beyond Death? Because I'm looking at some of these cards, and I'm seeing some pretty powerful stuff going on. I don't see anything that's on the level of of Throne from Theros. I actually, I think Theros, and and it's part of the way the set is designed from a flavor perspective because it's supposed to be this like epic thing with all these gods and big warriors that the mana cost on the cards tends to be pretty high relative to other sets. And that just puts a, a pretty big ceiling on where the power level of the cards can be, you know, uh, especially in older formats where curves are so condensed. Um, but beyond that, like I, I, nothing seems outlandish to me. I think there are things that in the right shell can be really good. Like, uh, you know, we did a little of Ox of Agonis uh, the other day on Versus Live, and that card looked really good when you were filling your graveyard. Um, obviously, there's some potential for Heliod Suncrown and Walking Ballista to do some damage. So, but let's talk about that just for a second, because that, that's, I think, the thing that has the most press going on it, oh, coming into Pioneer, sure. because it, cause it's an infinite combo. I think you and I both agree here that we think it's not a big a, as big a deal as most people think, because let, let's get the, the elephant in the room out of the way. White's unplayable. So like <laughs> putting planes in your deck is obviously a is obviously a big cost for playing this, but it's not like it's Feldor Guardian Sahili Rai. Like that it's it's no it's nowhere near the same thing. Those cards were good on their own more often than not, and had a lot of value attached to them. Plus you could win out of almost nowhere with those cards. This is not the same. I, I do think both Heliod and Walking Lista are yes, of course, good yeah. on their own. Yeah, very good, yeah. yeah. Um and probably the, not the, the best point me, that I was trying to make, but yeah, go ahead. The the, the issue for me is that there's not that same 3-4 curve. Right. With just those two cards and, you know, planes or whatever, appropriate lands, you're not killing them on turn four or even threatening to do so. And, it, you know, the thing about Twin and about the Sahili combo was that false tempo was in a really important part of the deck. Here, you know, when you play Heliod on turn three, on turn four, you're going Walking Ballista for, you know, X equals uh, you know, two, or X equals one, and then it doesn't have lifelink and doesn't have extra counter. So you either need to, uh, you know, find a way to give it an extra counter or find a way to get a Heliod trigger out of it. I guess... Um, Radiant Fountain is a good one here. Yeah. You you could turn to Daxos, the, the whatchamacallit from this set, the the demigod. Right. So Daxos is... A, so whenever another creature uh, enters the battlefield, you'll gain a life. So if you go Daxos into Heliod, now you're threatening to kill them. Because then you can play the Walking Ballista for X equals one. Daxos triggers, you gain a life. Then Helio triggers, you put a counter on the Ballista, then you give it lifelink with your other two mana, and you start going off with the Walking Ballista. So it, at that point, you're on a three-card combo, and that's that's fine. You know, three-card yeah. combo is not—that's uh, just—that's easily disruptible. 
the the question for me comes in is what if we just put that into a good aggressive shell you know there's a lot of white creatures we saw a white aggro decks pop up normally night base there was another sort of white weenie version with, with vibrator loxodon um, can we play something like that with heliod and walking ballista and just have this combo element in our aggro deck that might be really good so I, i'm i'm very concerned with how this you know supposed combo deck is going to have a backup plan Normally, creature combo decks have played Collected Company, which is available in Pioneer. But Collected Company and Walking Ballista are not a combo. Explain. So, <laughs> so, so that's a problem. So uh, I do think Heliod is is quite good. Uh, it's another card. We, we played it in Standard on Versus Live the, uh, the other day. But going long, just being able to you know give any creature lifelink, attack with it, and keep pumping it, and keep giving it lifelink, Makes races really hard, you know, for your opponent, and obviously Heliod, three mana, hard to deal with. You're going to have to find a way to consistently, you know, turn it on. And we have that sort of model with Thassa from original Theros, where you needed to go all out. You needed to have, a, a, you know, the the triple, although you have Benelish Marshall and things like that in, in Pioneer. I, th I think you have enough. You just have to be careful in how you build the deck. A Walking Ballista, unfortunately, doesn't quite get you there, but I'm sure there are other combos. I I'm... I'd have to see the shell because it's really important to have a good plan B around these creature combos, and nobody's really talking about that so far because you know the set's not fully previewed. It's all about the the press around the combo, and it's everything else that is what I'm concerned with. The the two things that come to me for this is a the way that I think it should be built is mono white devotion. That way, you have an extra payoff with walking ballista in the turns that you do generate extra mana from all of your white creatures. Are you going to be a Nykthos deck? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I think you should okay. be playing Nykthos. Yeah, because then Walkable List becomes yeah. a mana sink for Nykthos? Yeah. Okay, okay. It also works well with, with Heliod. You're like, generate, you know, 8, 10 mana, give everything, you know, lifelink, attack you with everything, you know, kind of thing. Uh, two, I will say this. Uh, when people are casting Heliod on turn 3, and then I untap on my turn 4 with Mono Green and cast my World Breaker, because that deck does that very often on turn 4 and just kills your Heliod... I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any complaints. I don't want to hear any bitching because <laughs> that's what my deck's doing. Your deck's doing what it's supposed to do and mine's doing what it's supposed to do. One of these plays is much more powerful than the other. I, it's not my fault that you chose that one. <laughs> you're, you're not going to hear any of that from me, Tannen. The only thing you're going to hear is the sound of my pen scratching along the match slip as I sign it <laughs> in your favor. The match is over. Yeah, exactly. So um, I do think that card's going to make waves. Uh, non uh, Kiora or Thassa puns for, for gods included. I do think that card is going to be good. You're going to see people playing it. I think what you should do is make a deck that is good when you're not comboing, is what Ross was getting into. You know, have backup plans, have another idea. Oh, what you want to do? Another card that had a lot of press coming in from uh, from Twitter and stuff like that when it got previewed. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's a card that costs one green blue that a lot of people are super excited. It's just a Summit card, again, that's very good. But Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath. This card has so much text on it, Ross. So much text on it, and it's a 6-6 for 3 mana. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one off for everybody at home. So it's 1 green blue. When it enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, when it enters the battlefield or attacks. So you're looking at... Uh, this is a, this. They they say Titan in the name because they are Titans. There's, there's two of these. They are Titans. So when they attack and, and when they come into play, they do these triggers. You gain 3 life draw a card, and you may put a land from your hand onto the battlefield. So, a lot of effect here. I will say that, and then uh, it's got escape. Green, green, blue, blue, exile five other cards from your graveyard. This comes into play, and this is where it stays in play, and it's a 6-6 six, six for three mana. 
I like this card a lot, Ross, because you're looking at explore, seer visions, whatever you want to say, like all kind of got jumbled into a card. If you cast this on like turn two off of an elf, obviously it's just busted, you know, because you're getting you're getting the explore effect most likely. Um, you're gonna you know gain some life, draw a card, put it. It's everything that green blue wants to be doing, right? And then if you do anything in the game, you lose any of your cards. You do any other kind of proactive thing, putting cards in your graveyard, you just get the six six that happens. And I mean, this card's great, right? It, like replaces itself, gains life. It's it's a threat that's never going away. Kind of, you know, you can keep casting it from your, your graveyard. I mean, what's not to like about this card? Um, there's two caveats on this card to me. Uh, I still think it's good, and I'll certainly be testing a lot with it. But there's two things that give me pause. The first is, uh, this is specifically for Pioneer, uh, is is a three-mana ramp spell, which is essentially what the front side of it is. So explore, gain three life for one green-blue. Is that a playable card in Pioneer? You know, people are playing Nissa's Pilgrimage. That one is somewhat important for giving you multiple lands. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, do you want to play eight? you know, three mana ramp spells, and if you don't want to play eight, which one is better? There's a lot of considerations there before you just, you know, right. mash this into your deck. Especially because this represents adding a second color to your ramp deck. Now, it's not a bad color, especially when you have Hydro Crisis available, things like that. Uh, but you also want to be, if you're trying to enable the escape as well, you're going to have to have enough blue mana to make that work. That, that's already an issue with uh, for ramp decks in Pioneer. Maybe this ends up in a different style, sort of that Simic Devotion deck that we saw mm -hmm. before Oka was uh, was banned that topped out at Hydroid Crisis. That fits really well into that deck, probably, um, if you want to be playing a three-man Explorer. But that was sort of a Devotion deck where you want to be getting creatures onto the battlefield. This only provides one Devotion, even if you spend four mana to escape it. Um, so th there's a question of fit, um, though, you know, the card might just be powerful enough that it spawns, you know, a new archetype. It's worth building around it rather than the cards that we previously had. Um, the other question for me is, you know, how are we enabling escape? I think it, it's uh, it's not trivial to have five other cards in your graveyard in a ramp deck um, when you're trying to cast this as a four drop, ideally. So, um and if you're in a graveyard deck that is going to fill your graveyard by that by turn four consistently, are you going to have access to green, green, blue, blue? That's that's a big thing for me. And I want I wonder with this, does the uh, dredgeless dredge, whatever you want to call that deck, does this deck start to shift more green, blue at this point? Because I got to say this, uh, Merfolk Secret Keeper is that the name of it? Is, is a card that can work pretty well with this. Um, you know, there's a couple other things that you can go along the lines of with those, and that deck's pretty... I mean, like, Seder Wayfinder seems like a, a, a card built to play alongside this card. Yeah, completely agree. Um, but th those decks are pretty heavy black. Yeah. You know, they're, they're basically Golgari with a tiny splash of blue for sideboard cards, and to be able to hard cast their Narcomibas and Amalgams. Now, the Sultai lands are good in Pioneer. You know, you have all the dual lands, and you have both fast lands. So... If you want to make it hard up on three colors, you know, if you want to make sure that you can cast Ditches Replier on like one, Seder Wayfinder on two, and Uro on three, or something along the lines of that, th this is something that can do that. You know, this is this is a these lands can enable that, but, but you have to work for it. So you know, oftentimes when a you know seemingly powerful card gets previewed, and there's a few you know obvious homes for it, people jump onto it and say, oh, it just slots directly into this deck. 
to me, I don't see a deck that this slots directly into because the opportunity cost is pretty high because you got to do certain things with it. It's a three mana ramp spell instead of a one or two mana ramp spell. Uh, and th this is for Pioneer. In standard, three mana ramp spell is great. That's been yeah. the, the standard. So that, that see, it seems great in standard. But in Pioneer, the opportunity cost of getting this into your deck is, you know, something. It, it's not super high, but it's definitely there. So there's a baseline that it has to surpass in order for it to be worthwhile. Now, the card looks quite powerful, so I wouldn't be surprised if it surpasses that base baseline, but it's not obvious to me that it does. So I, I'm, uh, I am opt very optimistic in this card. I do think it is good, uh, but I'm not 100% there just yet. I gotta say, this is probably, uh, last thing, this is probably, like, the most hyped card so far in the set that we've seen. Like, it's the, it's the one that when you look at it, yeah. raw word-for-word, raw word, stat-for-stat, this, this is, like, oh. a card. You know, we're finally catching on. For the last, like, three years, it's been, okay, what's the gross Simic mythic they printed yeah. this time? <laughs> this looks to be it. I will say this. So there's two of these titans. You know, they're 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 called titans. They are giants, just like all the titans were in the, pa in the past. So if you play this in modern, you, you can still name titan on your um, Cavern of Souls. It's okay. I, name giant. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Name giant, yes. Uh, so one of them is Simic. The other one is Rakdos. Uh, what color did not get a Titan? Because apparently these are the only two in the, in the set. That has been apparently confirmed. Oh, that's been confirmed? Uh, I, I think Rosewater said something about it. These these are it. These are the only two. Because like for, for, I didn't think they'd have enough mythic room for all this, honestly. But sure. th there's a color that's missing, Ross. Did you notice which one? <laughs> Just a, beating a dead horse. But one of the other cards that I'm pretty excited about, and it's another green card, Ross, is uh, I tried the Elysian Grove. And this one seems pretty pushed for its mana cost for what it does versus, like, cards of this effect in the past. But you're looking at two and a green. I'm kind of glad that it's two and a green and not one green green. And we'll, we'll talk about why in a minute, that it's actually harder to cast. But it's two and a green for a 2-4. Uh, you may play an additional land each of your turns. And lands you control are every basic land type in addition to other types. So you're looking at... Uh, exp uh, not explore. Um, what's the... Exploration. Yeah, you're looking at Oracle oh, Modai okay. or Exploration along with Prismatic Omen. And then you just get a 2-4 body. Th this card like, screams to be broken. You know, we don't have Valakut in this format, but maybe this spawns one of the new uh, Dread Presence decks along with, you know, Escape Shift because all of your lands are now swamps and you don't have to just play a deck full of swamps. There's some cool things you can do with this. Also, cards like this have just been good in the past. Now, a 2-4 for 3 mana, it does survive a lot of the removal in the format. You know, it doesn't straight up get Fatal Pushed. It doesn't get Shocked. Uh, lightning Strike's making a little bit of a comeback. It doesn't get Lightning Struck right away. Uh, getting to play extra lands, it's kind of cool. If you can make both lines of text of this card relevant, I think you've got a, a format, like a, a good rare on your hands, like a card that can be built into a deck. I'm not even sure if you 100% need to make the second line relevant. Three mana, three, two, four exploration already seems powerful in the right shell. I don't know exactly what tools are available in Pioneer, but if you're playing Uro, Hydrid, Crasis, this card, you know, 30 lands in your deck and other ways to utilize a bunch of mana, you're probably doing okay. I do like right? big mana strategies, Ross. It doesn't yeah. take much to make me do that. You got, you got your, you're probably playing your Nissas. Like, this is the way you want to build your ramp deck now is more of a Turbo Land style. Maybe you're maybe you're playing Ramanup Excavator to get value there. You're sacking Fabled Passage over and over again, or Ramanup Excavator and other you know utility lands like um, uh, Blast Zone. And there's the Colorless one that just sacrifices a draw card. There's I'm sure there's a ton. Uh, you'd have to go deep. This is like a, a Sam Black level 
of of brewing where you're just like this engine looks really cool um but i'm 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 in for this card for sure um I I just I would have to go through a lot of gatherer searches to figure out exactly what we can do with it because there's a lot and it, the thing about it is you know the explore effect it has really high diminishing returns so relative to exploration and explore and um what's the simic one uh, grow spiral grow spiral yeah starting on three getting your extra land drop is a problem. Because you're always you're 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 more likely to miss land drop n plus one than you are to miss land drop n. Right. Uh, so, uh, I'm you really need to have a high land count to make this card work. Because obviously you want to be getting it every single turn, and you probably want to be able to be reusing land drops. That's where excavator comes in. So your land count is probably going to be minimum twenty eight, uh, and I would say twenty eight to thirty. Uh, and it, you've got to find ways to draw a lot of extra cards so that you keep playing more lands. you got to find sinks for that. That's where Hydroid Crisis comes in. Um, Uro, the fact that it sort of plays both ways is really cool. Um, and then, you know, you can go from there. But you need, you need a little bit more than that. You're probably going to get a lot of your interaction from your lands, so Blast Zone is probably really good. Um, but that there, there's a lot. That card asks a lot, but it is very powerful in the right shell. Mm -hmm. Were there any more cards you wanted to talk about from the set? I know you kind of like the new Fleece Main Lion or anything like that. Yeah, um, I like that card more in Standard than I like it in Pioneer. Um, how about, uh, I like Eidolon of Obstruction quite a bit. Is that the Planeswalker the, Herder card? Yeah, it's a Colorless White for 2-1 enchantment creature. It's a Spirit, so that's relevant. Yeah, I guess it's an Eidolon, so we should have known that. And then has First Strike, and then Loyalty Abilities of Planeswalkers, your opponent's control, cost one more to activate. And... Uh, I, I spoke about this a bit on Versus Live this week, but this effect is really, really good mm -hmm. at stopping Planeswalkers. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the thing about them is you want to get them down as early as possible, and the, the, what makes them difficult to answer is that they get immediate value, so answering them directly with a spell with one-for-one one removal is generally ineffective, uh, even if it's a little mana efficient. So you really want to be attacking them down. And if you can attack them down before they actually get to activate, or your opponent has to wait a turn to cast them to get an activation, which makes it easier to attack them down, you know, it it solves every issue, uh, seemingly. You know, we've seen spirit decks in Pioneer, so maybe it fits into them. Maybe there's a white aggressive deck like we were talking about earlier. It might fit into that. Maybe there's an enchantress deck. I don't know. It might fit into that. So there's a lot of different homes I can envision in it. The one issue is... We actually don't see a lot of Planeswalkers in Pioneer. Right. It's just like, it's the blue-white deck, and that's about it. It's like one of the only decks that's like really popular with a yeah. lot of them, and this card seems very good against that deck. Um, I guess Ugin uh, out of the, the ramp deck. They have so, so much mana most of the time. Like, But but still, they're casting it on eight, and uh, you know, oftentimes you're casting it on eight to stay alive. Yeah, I mean, like you have Walking Blissa generally to pick this off as like a 2-1, but if you, can, okay. if you can fade that card, which people are starting to cut Walking Blissa a little bit too. Uh, that, that is a good point. Weak to Walking Blisto, weak to the cheap red removal. So there are some issues with the card. Maybe it's sort of a sideboard card against Azorius? Yeah, like maybe something like that. Cyber card against Azorius is definitely something I can see as well. And I know you kind of like just mentioned it for a second, but I do think that there's a very good possibility that there is an enchantment deck coming in Pioneer. We're seeing a lot of it getting pushed in Standard. And while I'm usually kind of iffy about those decks in Standard, this is the second Theros set that's going to be legal in Pioneer, because we get the other one. Plus, 
we've seen little sprinklings in the last couple like core sets and stuff of cards here or there. Uh, I'm looking at you, green white cards, uh, for the enchantment decks, but I gotta think something's coming. We got Idolo Tutor as well reprinted in this set. You can search your library for an enchantment card, reveal it, put it in your hand, shuffle your library, two and a white. You get whatever you want, whatever little combo piece or prison piece that you want. I gotta believe someone out there is salivating to make this deck and pioneer and stuff. It's it's not my cup of tea, it's not my bag, but if you get it right, the first tournament you bring it to, you are going to crush that event. Because no one is gonna be no one's gonna have like four to six removal spells for you in their sideboard. And Abrupt Decay is kind of not getting played that much right now. Yeah, it's really only in the graveyard decks where you see a lot of Abrupt Decays. I mean, it's out of the sideboards. So uh, I agree. Uh, if you get it right, the, the reward is there. And I see some tools that are interesting. On the last show, we mentioned Satessan Champion. Um, just because its stats line up really well with the format and gives you some card advantage. You know... Uh, I think uh, cards like the the Planeswalker are really good in that shell. You know, Calyx, Destiny's Hand, it, it reads like that the five-mana Planeswalker template. You know, plus one, a little bit better than draw a card. Minus three, remove some sort of permanent in some way. Minus seven or eight, you know, you win the game. But those costs, and this one costs four. So it's like just a one-mana discount, which is really huge with a Planeswalker. So in the right shell, that card could be very good. There are some other like good ch cheap cards. There's Archon of Sun's Grace, you know, this constellation card that keeps making Pegasus tokens. That seems really good. Uh, it would be really nice if they got you know a Topia Sprawl kind of card in Pioneer. I doubt we'll see that because that kind of card would be really, 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 really good in Standard. Um, so it would have to come with some significant restrictions. Um, but if we get if we get something like that, or like a, a good piece of cheap removal that's an enchantment base, like that's one or two mana, uh, that then I'm really in. But that that's the kind of piece that I'm waiting for to really put it over the top. Um, but we we've got really good pieces of card advantage and some powerful uh, payoffs for going that route. We, we just need the low end stuff to fill in the rest of the deck. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, one other card that I kind of wanted to bring up to see what you thought because I need someone smarter than me for this card, but it's enigmatic. Uh, incarnation, the blue-green enchantment that lets you sacrifice. Okay, so I'll just read it because it's 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 it reads a lot like um, Birthing Pot, which is a card that is banned in Modern. But it's at the beginning of your end step, you may sacrifice another enchantment. So you have to sacrifice an enchantment. So there there is some restrictions here, and I think this is where the card is gonna gonna fall if it falls. Um, if you do, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrifice enchantment's converted mana cost. Put the card onto the battlefield and shuffle your library. And it's two green blue. So it's kind of like Birthing Pod, but you have to have enchantments in play to go get creatures out of your deck. And that's going to be the problem is like having enough of both to make this consistently be good, I think. There's one aspect of this card that I really like and I think puts it... Oh, you know, this is the kind of card I would normally dismiss. Right, same. But because of this one aspect, I think this card has potential. And it's the fact that the trigger happens at your end step. Instead of, you know, your upkeep or the beginning of your first main phase. Yeah, you're pretty guaranteed to get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what normal, if it happened at your upkeep or your main phase, you would be casting this card for four mana and it would do nothing. And you would have to untap with it and then you would start getting your value. And that's just untenable. You can't be spending four mana for a card, especially in Pioneer, uh, and have it just do nothing. But the fact that it triggers in your end step means that you're if you you've spent an earlier turn playing some enchantment, getting some value, you're going to turn that into a creature, probably get a little bit more value, and have a little bit of extra presence on the battlefield. 
uh, to you know, make sure you don't fall too far behind. And that gives you the time, because this is a card that wants to be triggering over multiple turns, churning value uh, as the game progresses. But, you, you know, if you try to do that, sometimes you run the risk of just getting run over. The fact that you're getting the value immediately, or at least before your opponent takes their next turn, means that you're much less, um, you know, in danger of having that happen. So that's super important. I think finding the pieces, obviously it's hard, uh, but it's certainly doable. That is the really key aspect of it for me, that immediate value. And speaking of someone who is smarter than you, uh, Sam Black wrote his article this week on Star City Games about this card. Oh, did he? I'm not surprised. And yes. I will say this. When he writes something now and he's talking about spoilers, you should drop everything you're doing and just go read it and try to understand it. He has consistently been able to pick out stuff way ahead of time. Do you remember when Oko got spoiled? He talked about it possibly being the best Planeswalker in Magic. He talked about it being better than Jace when it first came out and we hadn't played with it yet. I got to give immense props to that man. He is crushing it when it comes to calling the right stuff. Plus, you know, he's he's been responsible for some of the best decks in Pioneer and Standard of the last few years, like behind the scenes or playing with it himself. Yeah, he can. He certainly contributed a lot to the, the Golgari Field of the Dead deck that sort of broke field. Um, and, and yeah, it's just like he just works on wonky cards like this. So this is a perfect Sam Black card. It's got some interesting brews with it. Um, one of one in standard and a, there was a couple pioneer brews in, in that article so uh if this is a card you're interested in that's definitely a place i would look and uh you know i haven't looked this is another card like i would have to it would take me two hours to come up with a brew for this card because i would have to search through every option figure out exactly what i'm going to do because it's not only you know you the first step is figuring out which colors and figuring out which colors you want is not really difficult because you got to go through all of them and figure out exactly where they are. You got to keep your curve in the right spot. What enchantments do you want to be playing to, you know, sacrifice to it? These are all difficult questions to answer and it makes it, it's a really tough card to build around. So, you know, I would have to sit down specifically with this card, which I have not had the time to do yet. Um, but uh, I will be interested to see what brews people come up with, whether it's Sam or, or somebody else. So I love that you said it would take me two hours. Like it's a long time to brew this card. Because the thing is, when I when I think of two hours, I'm like, that's way less time than it would take me to brew this card. And then I was like, how much time would it take? Oh, right. There's not an answer because I would never actually finish. Because I would either get too frustrated or just go down too many rabbit holes. Like, oh, but what about Bant? Oh, but, but what about like Sultai? You know, oh, what about like Jun Splash? This, you know, I would just do everything. I would never finish one thought. When I say two hours, I mean to come up with the first draft of my first brew okay. around it. Okay, okay, I get that. That's to, that's to, more real to have a to have a list. The list would be complete dog shit, <laughs> and it would still take two hours. I, I'm sure there would be like a thing or two after playing it. You'd be like, all right, this was onto something. Like this little part was onto something, and I guess that's how yeah, you. And, and, and yeah, oh, and it would take you another three weeks to come up with a tuned list because you'd be like, oh, okay, this this one creature was good. This one of wasn't. You know, this enabler wasn't good. Let me try another one, uh, and. Oh, it, it, there's there's just so much going on with this card, even more than with, you know, Birthing Pod was a, a lot more self-contained, obviously, because it's just all creatures. So, uh, you know, and th that card was a lot easier to brew around than this one. This one, you need the enchantment enablers and then the creatures to go with it. And you need your curve to be like from enchantment to creature. Correctly. Obviously, yeah, like, yeah. You know, obviously playing the actual enchantment creatures themselves helps a lot there. You know, a card like Corsair Crufix is probably great. Uh, with this card yeah so, there are a lot of enchantment creatures so like that does help out quite a bit yeah but like how many of them are super playable in pioneer mm -hmm. you know we'll have to find out that we will yeah so 
I think it's going to about do it for our preview portion of the show. Next week, we'll be talking about some more cool stuff. We'll have a lot more cards previewed. Uh, before we start wrapping the show up, I do just want to take one second to talk about um, if you haven't heard about what's going on in Australia, do yourself a, a favor and just take a minute to, to Google about what's going on in Australia. My wife and I donated to it over the last week. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, is, is from there and is very worried about what's going on in his, in his home country and stuff like that. There's a lot going on there with just uncontrollable fires and lots of people and animals are losing their life. So um, if you were thinking about donating to us this month, I would much rather you you send it over to Australia this month it, or, or next, however long it takes. But, uh, you know, I don't want to go into it too much. But if you have a moment, just, uh, you know, educate yourself a little more on what's going on over there and possibly sending those people some help because they desperately, desperately need it. Um, anyway, Ross, so uh, if people wanted to, you know, hear more about you, you know, see some of this versus live that you keep talking about or read some of your articles, where could they do that? Okay. So uh, best place to find me personally is on Twitter where I am under at Ross Hunneds. That's R-O-S-S-H-U-N-N-E-D-S. Uh, and if, you know, if you ever have questions or whatever, uh, I do try to respond to as many people as I can on there. Uh, my articles come out weekly, usually on Tuesdays. This week's article will go live on Thursday. There's a little reshuffling with the schedule, but typically I'm live Tuesdays on Star City Games at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, and I appreciate everyone who reads my articles there. And then Versus Live, if you are uh, unaware of this, this is a web show that I do with Corey Baumeister on uh, twitch.tv slash starcitygames, which is the same channel you go to to watch open coverage. We're there during the week from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, just, you know, we're live on stream. We take questions from the audience, so it's a fun time. Uh, we play whatever formats we think are relevant. It's just sort of, you know, the two of us playtesting a little bit, John back and forth, playing for some marbles. Uh, and we have a fun time with it. So uh, I encourage you all to check that out live. If you can, get in the chat, get involved. Um, and if you cannot view us live because of work or whatever reason, uh, those uh, episodes do go up on the Star City Games YouTube channel. The Tuesday shows go up on the following Friday and the Wednesday shows or the Thursday shows, sorry, go up the following Monday. Uh, so once again, that's Tuesday, Thursday, 1 to 4 p.m. Twitch.tv slash Star City Games. Cool. If you wanted to find me, uh, hear more from me. I've been tweeting a lot about sports lately, a lot of a lot of big football and stuff going on, and I'm going to go nuts when uh, when baseball season starts. But that's at the Tan and Grace. That's T H E Tan and Grace. Um, if you want to follow the the podcast itself, its Twitter is at Cast Pioneer. If you type in Pioneer Cast, it'll probably it'll possibly also come up. But for some reason, we're just at Cast Pioneer on Twitter. Um, on our Twitter, you will find a link to our Discord. Our Discord is uh, an ever-growing community of like-minded you know, magic players and hanging out and talking in there. We have something like 20 to 30 different discussion points going in there at all points of times. We even have a brand new one that I think Ross is going to be a big fan of. I know I'm a big fan of. We have a food discussion page in there. So uh, what we're going to start trying to do uh, for, for some people in there is uh, we'll, we'll talk about the shows as well, but before opens... Uh, to the cities that we're, we're traveling to, we will put some of our food recommendations in the food sections uh, when we can, obviously time permitting. You know, if you just don't get to it, we don't get to it, but we'll try to as much as we possibly can and make sure that, you know, when you're there, you have a couple options to choose from if you want. Also within there, there is a Patreon section that only our patrons can uh, can talk in. Ross and I are pretty active in there. We're going to be posting deck lists and stuff in there before we play them in tournaments, uh, things like that. Right now we have a two and a $5 tier um, I keep hinting at something coming, and it's coming very soon, Ross. I don't, I don't know how excited you are, but I'm, I'm pretty excited that we're going to get to add in there, and then there's more great stuff to come. We're, we're going to be adding more and more tiers. 
Ross and I were talking about before the show possibly adding a hundred or two hundred dollar tier, uh, not as a joke. We were possibly doing serious because <laughs> it, it's it's a joke. But we were trying to do the the not safe for work work version of the show because you need to hear Ross and I's conversation before and after the episodes. No, nobody needs to hear that, Tanner. Want you might want to hear these conversations. <laughs> need is definitely a stretch. You're definitely right, but nobody needs to hear that. But there's some funny stuff going on there, and we won't make it a hundred dollars. I was kind of joking, unless you'll pay that much. So just just let me know. <laughs> just unless you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. In which case, I'm completely serious. Yeah. But that's at Patreon.com/slash PioneerCast. So um, if you can help us out, that's that's great. As I said, if you can only do one of the two, please donate to Australia uh, this month. I'd much rather you do that. But you know, we do need to pay Brent right now. He's just curled up in a corner waiting for the next episode and, and crying himself to sleep as he as he edits more and more and more of our stuff so we need to make sure that he can afford coffee to stay up late and make us sound much better than we ever deserve to so again thanks Brent. You're, you're great but um as for this week's episode i think that's about it a uh, lot to talk about over the next couple of weeks we're gonna have uh, a grand prix this weekend with a lot of pioneer action going on so we're gonna see another like irl metagame things start happening it's it's really cool right ross we're getting like actual paper IRL events besides just the invitational that was spur of the moment. Yeah. You know, that, that classic in, in uh, Columbus was 150, 160 people. Yeah. It's a good, good size event, had some good players in it. Um, and we're, we're only going to get more of that. I can't wait till we get our first Pioneer open. Cause that's, that's what I was about to get to. I like it. You, uh, you led me in perfectly. We're only a couple opens away from the first Pioneer open. And I think it's going to be popular. There's going to be a lot of people showing up. I Like I keep saying, I think this time next year, within the next year, I think this is going to be the most popular format. I think it's going to start supplanting modern very, very soon. Um, I really want to try to get us a financial episode sometime soon. We're, we're trying really hard to have somebody on. Um, it's really hard to make schedules sync up because we're all, you know, like I work a full-time job. Ross does as well, but they're very different. Um, because with actual premier event level stuff coming up, I think you're going to see prices start to go up. In Pioneer. So like I said, I think this is a really good time to do investing. If you're looking to get your deck, I'm not trying to scare you. You know, I don't I don't have I don't get commission anywhere from you buying magic cards, but you should maybe look into it and make that decision sooner than later. So I'm super excited about all these tournaments, all this new stuff coming on. Um, what cards are you excited about from the new set? And I'm talking about you, listener at home. Make sure that you tweet at us, uh, tag me, Ross, or Cast Pioneer. We will have some discussions on Twitter. Maybe we'll discuss them on next week's episode. You'll have to tune in to find out. But until then, we'll see y'all next week.